Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. Friends, we are so excited for today's trip as we fly over on our magic carpet ride to Honolulu to join friends and colleagues from the University of Hawaii Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. In this beautiful state, we get to learn today from Drs. Isaac Mizrahi, Nat Limprutidam, Nishan Trivedi, and Shana Graif. Guys, welcome to the show. Super excited to chill with you today in Hawaii and dive into some cardiology. Would you mind first telling everyone who you are? Sure. Uh, hey, guys. I'm Shauna. I'm a third-year fellow at the University of Hawaii. I'm originally from New York. I did residency at Kaiser in LA, and I'm going to be heading off for EP fellowship in July. Hi, guys. I'm Isaac. I grew up outside of D.C. Did my undergrad in Boston, med school at Tel Aviv University, Sackler, and then came to New York for residency and here in Hawaii. Aloha, everyone. My name is Nath. I'm originally from Thailand. I did internal medicine residency here in Hawaii, and I am very happy to stay here for cardiology fellowship. Aloha, everyone. My name is Nishant, born and raised in New York, went to med school at Mount Sinai in Manhattan, uh, and then kept heading west, did my residency, chief residency at Kaiser in San Francisco, and uh, blessed to be here in Hawaii at the University of Hawaii. It's been fantastic. And thanks for having us. Team, it is such a pleasure to be with you guys all today. I cannot imagine a better place to discuss cardiology than being in Hawaii with all of you. I'm imagining myself with you guys on the beach somewhere. But I'm going to let you guys tell us, where should we discuss this case? Because there can be no better place than Hawaii to discuss some cardiology. I think that's why a lot of our conferences end up. <laughs> Truth. You're absolutely right. This is a beautiful place with so many wonderful places to discuss cardiology. And we had a discussion amongst ourselves as to where we should be discussing this case, so to speak. And I think Isaac came up with probably the best choice. Uh, if Isaac, you don't mind sharing, that would be awesome. Sure. I thought we would uh, take a drive up to the North Shore, grab some shaved ice over at Matsumoto's and catch the big wave servers at Pipeline while we talk about this case. <laughs> you guys are awesome. I wish you could see me right now. I'm just like nonstop grinning ear to ear, just imagining where we are right now, having a good time with shaved ice. I just have to say a big mahalo to all of you guys for bringing us along to enjoy the day today. There's one other person with me right now who's my wife, and I promised her to take her to Hawaii. And this is my compromise right now. So, <laughs> one, one, Kurt, I'm not sure if this is going to get you out of that one. <laughs> so, thank you for taking my wife and I to Hawaii. It's been a long time coming. Uh, she's very much appreciative of this journey Aww. that we've taken together. We're looking forward to hosting you guys. Absolutely. When there's time after this. You'll love it here. I'm, I'm imagining in my mind if Nina is uh, smiling or frowning right now. <laughs> <laughs> I 
think we better get to the case before we delve into that further. What else would we be doing with shaved ice on a beach looking at servers, but talk about cardiology? Guys, what do we have? I'm glad you asked, my friend. So we have a super exciting case for you. We have a 60-year-old gentleman who's coming in with a chief complaint of fatigue, shortness of breath, and lower extremity swelling. He's been having progressive fatigue for about two to three weeks and worsening dyspnea, especially on exertion. And he's been endorsing a sensation of his own heartbeat. It's been beating fast for his report. What other things can we tell you about him? Yeah, so, you know, progressive fatigue, worsening dyspnea, and palpitations is certainly a concerning presentation. And when I think about how to put a picture together, I think, okay, let's formulate our problem representation, which is our epidemiology, who's our host, the duration of symptoms, because the temporality will help us narrow the differential diagnosis, and the clinical syndrome, so we can zero in or hone in on the diagnoses. And so in this situation, I'm building an idea of what the clinical syndrome is, and the timeline you said, it sounds like it's subacute on the order of weeks. But I don't yet have a great understanding of who the host is. So I'd love to learn a little bit about the epidemiology in terms of past medical history, social history, family history, so we can start thinking about the base rates of disease that would account for this patient's clinical syndrome and the duration of symptoms. That's such a great point. And we'll definitely go into that right now. His uh, past medical history is significant for hypertension, hyperlipidemia. He has paroxysmal AFib with a CHADS-VAS score of 3, but he's not on anticoagulation for unknown reasons. He has severe peripheral artery disease, and in his past surgical history, he's had a FEM bypass in 2014, as well as a AAA repair. He's taking atenolol, atorvastatin, amlodipine, and aspirin. No allergies or family history worth noting. And he continues to abuse tobacco. He's been smoking about one pack per day for 30 years, but does not drink alcohol or consume any illicit drugs or medications. Thanks, Nishan. So this really helps start honing in our understanding of who this patient is and why this patient may be coming in with these symptoms. One question I have is, what setting are we in right now? Is this acute in the ED or is this a patient who's coming in with these subacute symptoms? in the medical office, just because it'll help us understand how to triage this and what the level of concern should be. But then also, we're building a story for somebody with a number of atherosclerotic risk factors, as well as arrhythmic disorder. And so we can start conceptualizing the symptoms within that context. Absolutely. I I really appreciate the fact that you're creating a, a picture of this patient and trying to summarize them well, because that's Super helpful, especially when we need to communicate it with other providers, other consultants. We saw this patient in the emergency department, and it was myself and one of the other fellows who engaged with him initially. So when I see patients with shortness of breath in the emergency room, I also like to keep my differential broad as well. I always think about other life-threatening conditions such as pulmonary embolism or spontaneous pneumothorax or pneumonia as well. So I'm not going to jump to one organ system. I want to keep all the options. That's a great point, Nath. Just to interject about his history, it's interesting that a six-year-old would already require so many surgical procedures for vascular disorders. Looks like the physical might help in determining what direction we should go with the differential. I think that's a, a really important point that was just made, that this patient has had significant vascular disease burden. And taking a step back to what Amit was saying, where the context of where the patient is presenting, also the timeline matters significantly. Now, with cardiopulmonary disease, we all try to narrow in on a syndrome. Is this a heart failure syndrome? Is this a patient that's presenting with an arrhythmogenic syndrome? And with this constellation of symptoms, it's hard to just put your circle around one thing and say, I can really get an idea that this patient is having an arrhythmia or ischemia, or a decompensated heart failure because of ischemia or various things. But what I do see is that there seems to be an acute on subacute presentation, a least of a constellation of symptoms that fits heart failure. And when I think of acute heart failure or subacute heart failure, I agree that I think it's really important to make sure that we're not missing acute life-threatening causes. And I try to break it down into things, okay, if we're thinking that this is a heart failure syndrome, Is it impacted in the myocardium, the endocardium, the pericardium, or is there some kind of rhythm issue that could be contributing to it? And everything is on the table here, but I'm as much concerned about myocardium, especially in the setting of potentially acute coronary syndrome 
Or even in these times right now, is there some kind of infectious process that's led to some bystander level of myocarditis or pericarditis? Is there something that is affected the endocardium? Is this patient that has a chronic ischemic disease had significant mitral regurgitation? Or is this patient with significant vascular disease now developed aortic root dilation and aortic regurgitation? So everything's on the table. And I think that just making sure that from the history so far that we haven't ruled anything out is critical as we take our next steps in terms of the physical exam, the diagnostics. And we're really excited to hear what's next. Karen, I love the way you have such a systematic way of breaking things down. And it reminds me of what we've talked about in the past are the five failures. So if we think there is a cardiac problem, we can think, is there myocardial failure, coronary failure, electrical failure, valvular failure, or pericardial failure? And so almost, you know, we think about an organ systems approach to assessment and plan. This is a tissue approach to cardiac pathology. But I agree right now, we are still very premature early in the case. We can still think about pulmonary causes, hematologic causes. For all we know, this could be hyperthyroidism causing palpitations, dyspnea, and shortness of breath. So there's a lot to tease out here. We definitely need more data from physical exam, blood work, and so on. So where do we go from here? We're in the ED. We've got symptoms. We've got a history. What do we find? That's a great question. And I really love the sort of buckets that that we put our differential diagnoses in and how we approach this patient. When we have a sick patient, I think the first right answer in what to do next is go see them and really do a solid physical exam. And that's what we did. We found that his vitals were significant for a heart rate of 140, his blood pressure 95 over 60, respiratory rate of 12, and he was satting 97% on room air. Uh, He wasn't in any major distress. While he was resting, his JVP definitely was elevated at least to 12. In terms of his cardiac exam, he was tachycardic with an irregular rhythm, but his valvular sounds were normal and he had no murmurs or rubs or gallops. His lungs were clear. His extremities were warm and well perfused. He did have a little bit of trace bilateral pitting edema, but nothing significant. And in terms of his neuro exam, he was ANO times three, cranial nerves uh, two through 12 were intact, and he was very engaging with us, no abnormalities. And I think Daph, he looked into some of the physical exam findings, especially in the setting of acute decompensative heart failure. Nath, would you mind speaking on that? Yes, so that's a good point. To me, his physical exam is very notable for elevated JVP. He does have some tachycardia and lower extremity pitting edema. The clinical pictures of acutely compensated heart failure. The JVP is pretty helpful in terms of the physical findings to assess ventricular filling pressure here. As we know from the ESCAPE trial, that JVP more than 12 centimeters um, water was associated with pulmonary capillary wet pressure more than 22 millimeter mercury. Although the sensitivity and specificity is not that high as well. We're talking about 65% sensitivity and 64% specificity. So if you see one, that kind of helps to fit these clinical pictures. But if you don't see one, you cannot completely rule out acutely compensated heart failure. Yeah, that was a great breakdown, Nath and uh, Nishan. Thanks for going over the physical exam. And all I know right now is, in addition to knowing that the patient probably has elevated filling pressures, is that this patient on the scale of sick or not sick, this patient is sick, right? A patient is tachycardic with an irregular rhythm. So perhaps is an atrial fibrillation. We know there's a history of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. The patient is hypotensive. And now we don't know what their baseline blood pressures are, but I'm seeing a heart rate of 140 and a blood pressure of 95 over 60, I am pretty concerned about this patient. And if this is atrial fibrillation, we'd wonder, is this primarily driven by atrial fibrillation as a primary arrhythmic disorder leading to hypotension because there may be some other structural abnormality? Or is there something driving an adrenergic surge to drive AFib with RVR? So for instance, is there sepsis? Is there hypovolemia? Is there a PE? We said, okay, this patient is not in the office, this patient is in the ED, so we're already worried. But with tachycardia, hypotension, and elevated filling pressures, I am running to the bed trying to figure out what's going on. I can't wait for the next set of data because we have to figure this out. We have to figure this out quick. And it does help to know that the extremities are warm. So at least on that framework of cold versus warm and wet versus dry, so far we think that this may be on the spectrum of warm and wet presentation. And then, Ahmed, I think I wholeheartedly agree with you. And just in terms of logistics, I'm thinking this is a patient that's ill. 
And I'm starting to prepare my mind for what I would do next if this patient became more decompensated. So I know where my defibrillator is in the room. I know what my personnel is in the room. I know where the medications are that I'm going to have to administer, what my IV access is, while I'm trying to figure out what the ideology of this patient, shortness of breath, pitting edema, albeit mild, and presentation is. I'm making sure we're working on two different tracks, the acute management and the diagnostics. So in other words, the patient's clinical status is about as turbulent as the waves our surfers are riding in front of us right now. So this isn't time to pause. This is time to act. I really like what you both just said, especially identifying a sick versus not sick patient, I think is a skill that takes a lot of effort and time to recognize somebody who is ill. And this gentleman is ill, even though he looks comfortable in his bed. So we have to take a step back and we have to act and not sit on the patient, so to speak. But it's also important for us to take a breath and summarize the patient well. And I think the way I would characterize this patient is that we have a sick 60-year-old gentleman with multiple CAD risk factors, peripheral vascular, peripheral artery disease. He was presenting with signs and symptoms consistent with acute decompensated heart failure. And we also mentioned a few other differentials. Would anyone have any thoughts on what next studies we should get? Jean, I'm interested to see what his chest x-ray looks like, EKG, and some basic labs. And we have that for you, my friend. Uh, you mind walking us through the uh, chest x-ray? Yeah, sure. So the chest x-ray looks like there's no prior CT surgeries. Bony structures are intact. Increased vascular markings without evidence of pleural effusions. And a prominent aortic knob without significant calcification. So with this story of abdominal aortic aneurysm, it's important to keep in mind that aneurysmal disease anywhere throughout the aorta may exist. So it may be worth looking at with further imaging. He's got an enlarged cardiac silhouette with a cardiothoracic ratio that appears greater than a half and double contour sign on the right heart border. So it's concerning for atrial enlargement. So just a point about the chest x-ray, there's a lot that can be gleaned about cardiac history just from looking at it. That's perfect. Thank you, Isaac. Definitely our PA films are a little bit more accurate in assessing heart size than our AP films. And a lateral film would be helpful as well. But I think you summarized all the major points about this patient's chest x-ray. And I'm glad that you mentioned that this gentleman's history of aneurysmal disease in his abdominal aorta, it's not a localized disease and we can see it elsewhere as well. So thanks for bringing that up. Shana, as our local electrophysiologist that we come to on a daily basis for EKG interpretation, would you mind walking us through uh, this EKG, please? Sure. So this EKG looks to be demonstrating atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, which fits in with our physical exam finding with the irregular tachycardic rhythm. There is left axis deviation. It looks consistent with left ventricular fascicular block with the little Q and big R and one in AVL and little R and big S and two in AVF. There is poor R-wave progression, which again could be a normal variant versus possibly indicative of some prior infarct, as well as QRS alternance, which we can see often in some tachycardic rhythms, as well as evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy with a voltage in AVL that is greater than 11 millimeters. Thanks, Shana, for that great EKG read. We proceeded to get some labs. His hemoglobin was 14.7, white count was 8, and platelets were 240. He had a potassium of 4.7. His creatinine was 1.1. The INR was 1.4. His BNP was 1,109. His troponin was negative, And his TSH was also normal. And Nath, I think you had some thoughts on the BNP. Would you mind sharing them with us? And may I ask real quick, the INR is 1.4 is certainly not normal. Mm -hmm. And this could be from a variety of reasons, either it could be a nutritional problem where the patient is just not taking in, uh, you know, vitamin K foods. It could be a vitamin K antagonist, but the patient's not on warfarin, and we have to assume that they're not consuming rat poison. It could be consumption. If the patient is quite sick and septic, maybe DIC and things like this. But I think one concern here in somebody who uh, may be hemodynamically uns uh, unstable is, is their liver dysfunction as a consequence of either congestion or a low perfused state. Do we have liver enzyme labs by chance? Yes, that's a great question. We got LFTs and they showed a mild elevation in the AST and ALT. 
uh, no significant bilirubin elevation or ALK-FOS. And that led us to be a little bit concerned that the patient might be in a congestive state and these AST and ALT elevations might be consistent with a congestive hepatopathy. But fortunately, they did downtrend. So because the D-dimer was elevated to a result of 3.97, and given the patient's history, especially with the shortness of breath, we decided to pursue a VQ scan. So I'll throw it over to Isaac. Isaac, what do we do next in terms of working up this patient? What studies do you think we should get next? So we brought up acute decompensated heart failure. And uh, I'd love to see what the echo shows to help in that regard. That's awesome. And we got one ready for you to walk us through it. Sure. So this EF showed marginally reduced function with wall motion abnormalities in the inferior and feral lateral walls and thinning akinesis of the basal mid-septum. They found some interesting incidental findings on the echo. There was a large 4.5 by 4.7 centimeter round extracardiac structure, one with heterogeneous echo texture in the AV groove, and a second with an echolucent interior located adjacent to the RA. This is very interesting. I think the wall motion abnormalities look like RCA or left cirque disease. What could be the differential for the extracardiac findings? So when you find findings on the echo that are unfamiliar, it helps to determine based on the anatomy what they could be. So based on it being in the AV groove, there are three potential structures, a dilated coronary sinus, a coronary aneurysm, the circumflex would be sitting in the posterior AV groove, or an abscess. And as far as the echolucent structure, we see the coronary sinus back as expected in the RV inflow view, which is separate from the extracardiac structure that was found. All great points. And I know we were talking a little bit about the x-ray before, but tying it back to the x-ray, the chest x-ray, there was atrial enlargement seen. It was a moderate to severe dilation on the echo as well. So I think our studies corroborate one another. So guys, uh, just to think about where we are right now, we've got a patient who's coming in with a history of significant atherosclerotic vascular disease with a subacute progressive syndrome of dyspnea, palpitations, and fatigue. He is an AFib RVR and hypotensive, and our echocardiogram shows, thinking about the five failures, we have a low ejection fraction, wall motion abnormalities that do map onto a coronary distribution, and some sort of extracardiac mass. At this point, you know, one, you said that the basal septum was thinned and akinetic, and so there's probably a degree of chronicity to this coronary distribution, wall motion abnormality. In addition, there are no ST changes concerning for ischemia on the EKG, and the troponin elevation, which I'm assuming we, we tracked over a period of time, was not indicative of an acute MI. But this does raise some questions. To what degree is potentially an old coronary ischemic or infarcted territory playing into this current uh, presentation? And what is the extracardiac structure? Is it an incidentaloma? Is it rather playing into the current presentation? And what are the next steps in elucidating what the differential diagnosis is here? And, you know, with surface echocardiogram is certainly going to be a little bit limited in reconstructing three-dimensionally uh, relationships of structures with respect to one another. And so cross-sectional imaging is probably something that would further help elucidate what we're seeing or missing. And in addition to that, some form of functional coronary evaluation may help as well, uh, functional and or anatomic. So I would probably pursue a cross-sectional imaging to identify or better understand the structure, as well as some sort of coronary evaluation. You know, I think that's exactly the way I was pursuing this. And just to hammer home the point, I think we have to figure out, is what we're seeing the reason the patient here is short of breath? Because we all will see something an echo like this and get excited about the differential. Like you guys went through, is this a dilated coronary sinus? Is this a coronary artery aneurysm? Is this an aneurysmal cirque? Or is there some other mass contributing to this patient's presentation? We still have this sick patient in front of us and have to figure out simultaneously the acute process and also these findings at the same time. So are the findings we have responsible for the acute process? And what are these findings? And so I agree with that imaging process, and I'm excited to hear about what you guys suggested next. 
Yeah. And, you know, as we think about possibly cross-sectional imaging for this patient, I'm just, again, thinking about the patient's heart rate, right? Because cross-sectional cardiac imaging, whether you do a CT scan or a cardiac MRI, in this case, maybe a CT scan first, there's a challenge. How do you image a moving structure, right? Isn't it just going to come out blurry? Imagine you have all these CT chests and there's a motion artifact that degrades uh, resolution and diagnostic capability. But for cardiac imaging, the image acquisition is gated so that you acquire images at the same portion of the cardiac cycle, according to the EKG. And so in that setting, sure, we can put on some EKG leads and gate image acquisition to the EKG for uh, cardiac cycle. But if the patient is going at 140, there are a couple of things that make that challenging. One is an irregular rhythm, and two is a tachycardic rhythm. And this patient both has an irregular rhythm and a tachycardic rhythm. And so I think controlling the AFib RVR may be more pertinent right now, especially because it's concurrent hypotension. And I think about the adage, if you're unstable, get the cable. And I'm wondering, what did you guys do? Again, there is certainly an impetus to figure out what the etiology is, but there's also an impetus to uh, acutely manage the patient's picture as you see them in front of you on the hospital bed, because clearly whatever's going on has been a subacute progressive process and taking care of the acute hemodynamics is going to be more important uh, off the bat. I think that's a, a great point you raised. The acute hemodynamics are important to have a handle on. Fortunately for this uh, gentleman, we were able to rate control him successfully, and he was able to tolerate the further studies we went to next. You brought up some great points regarding CT, especially the difficulties we face with CT when a patient's heart rate is irregular and fast. Uh, so our next step was to plan for a cardiac catheterization, especially in the setting of a new cardiomyopathy and acute decompensated heart failure. Actually, Nishant, before we were able to take him down, we had to take a look at his telemetry as he was found to have some wide complex tachycardia. Whoa. So this was quite concerning and we needed to address this pretty quickly. When we took a look, there seemed to be a wide complex tachycardia with apparent AV dissociation, which definitely made us concerned for ventricular tachycardia that needed urgent intervention. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about the way we would approach this type of rhythm when we see it on a telemetry? I would love to, but I know that my friend Nath, he has a budding interest in electrophysiology and would love to talk about it even more than I would. Nath, do you mind sharing a little bit about your uh, workup of SVT with a Berency versus VT? Yeah, so it's uh, it's quite common that we see this Y-complex tachycardia, especially during in the night during calls. So the first thing I try to look for is I look for AV dissociation. If I see any evidence of AV dissociation, it is almost always VT. Second thing is I look for QRS duration. If the QRS duration is more than 160 milliseconds, it also suggests VT as well. Or if that Y-complex tachycardia has a right bundle branch morphology, if the QRS duration is more than 140 milliseconds, that suggests VT. Access also help in terms of distinguish between VT and SVT as well. So if you see right superior axis, that also suggests VT. There are also other algorithms, including Brugada algorithm, lead AVR algorithm, and lead to criteria that you can use to distinguish between VT and SVT with aberrancy. Thanks, Nat. That was a great breakdown of how to approach SVT with aberrancy versus VT. And I feel like we come across this all the time. And just one clinical rule, if there's a history of ischemic cardiomyopathy or coronary artery disease, then the overwhelming chances are that this actually is a VT rather than SVT with aberrancy. And because VT usually carries uh, a more of a hemodynamic significance up front, if you're confused, is it one or the other, then maybe best to treat as a VT up front, especially within that context. Now, this patient doesn't have a known history of CAD, but this patient has a history of atherosclerotic disease in other vascular beds. And now we also see a coronary distribution wall motion abnormality with at least some area of infarct, probably with a basal septum involved. So I think if I were to put my dollar down, I'd probably manage this upfront as a VT while trying to sort it out. There are other signs of it being an SVT as well. So that's a great point, Amit, and I wholeheartedly agree. One of the maxims of medicine that uh, I've been taught from uh, some of the electrophysiologists in my own institution is that if you're suspecting that it's not VT and SVT with aberrancy, you're wrong. 
because <laughs> as you mentioned, <laughs> The majority of the time, especially the patients in, with a history of atherosclerotic disease or even any history of cardiomyopathy, the, the chances and likelihood and the base rates are going to be higher for VT. So guys, what did you end up doing for this patient? So he was cardioverted out of this abnormal rhythm and underneath it, he returned to a sinus rhythm. Yeah. And just to note that this patient, the rhythm initially was a monomorphic ventricular tachycardia as opposed to a polymorphic VT. And some things to consider for a polymorphic VT would be an increased likelihood that it's either from ischemia or a long QT with an R on T. But a monomorphic VT is probably more likely to be scar-mediated. But either way, it is helpful to look at the post-cardioversion EKG to see if there are new signs of ischemia or uh, other etiology. It sounds like there weren't any. But what do we do next in terms of figuring out what's going on? Because our level of urgency and concern is going up and up with every turn. Couldn't agree more with you. We thought that the best option was to take this gentleman to cath. And uh, cath is near and dear to my heart because I want to go in interventional. And so it- indeed, a cardiac cath is near to your heart. Ah, that's the one. No, I think uh, this would be the point where Dan would just be shaking his head <laughs> and be telling Amit, you're such a cardio nerd. But, uh, so I, I'll try to do that for Dan. I'm scared right now. You know, I've, I've got to uh, answer Dan's dad jokes with uh, Cardinal's jokes, you know. There you go. Um, so we took this gentleman to cath. We performed a left heart cath with the coronary angiography. And we had some s- significant findings. We found that the proximal portion of his LED was calcified and dilated. And there was a high-grade stenosis close to his first septal perforator. The circumflex, it was ectatic. And distal portions of the vessel were providing a collateral flow to the distal RCA. And that is always something we should look out for on these angiograms. Are there collaterals? The fact that we saw collaterals from the circumflex to the RCA made us concerned for an RCA lesion. And finally, after engaging the RCA, we found a massive aneurysm with Timmy zero flow distally. It was ectatic, aneurysmal, and it was challenging to fill that vessel with contrast. Oh my gosh, guys, I'm looking at these images and all I can say is, uh, and I'll borrow a phrase from our friends at Mayo Clinic, UFTA. You you all have to open up the episode notes and take a look at these images. This is extremely impressive and truly diagnostic of a giant coronary aneurysm. Couldn't agree more. We were definitely surprised. Folks, definitely take a look at the images. You'll see, especially when you look at the images of the right coronary artery, how the contrast sort of dumps into a very large vascular structure that turns out to be an aneurysm. And really, we saw this even on the ventriculogram that there is an aneurysmal dilatation uh, of the right coronary artery. So it's worth checking out. Sean, thanks for walking us through this very impressive coronary angiogram. And we used a couple of terms that may be worth defining for the audience. We said there's a coronary aneurysm, a giant aneurysm, and actasia. Just to define them and be a little bit more precise for the audience moving forward, we think of a coronary artery aneurysm when the size or the width of one segment, the aneurysmal segment is 1.5 times the adjacent normal coronary artery. And when it is focal and discrete, we say that's a coronary artery aneurysm, CAA. But if it's diffuse, then we think of that as a coronary artery ectasia. And so in this patient, when you look at the images, the left circumflex is is an example of an ectatic coronary artery, whereas this RCA, this focal aneurysm, is probably more of an example of a discrete aneurysm. And then we can further classify aneurysms into saccular aneurysm or a fusiform aneurysm. And the terms there are actually fairly intuitive. A saccular aneurysm looks like a sac. And so the transverse diameter is longer than the longitudinal diameter. And the fusiform aneurysm is exactly the opposite, where the longitudinal diameter is greater than the transverse diameter. And so we said that an aneurysm is when the diameter of the aneurysmal segment is 1.5 times the normal. A giant coronary aneurysm has been variably defined depending on whether we're talking about pediatric age or adult age. But you can say that essentially, if it's four times greater than the adjacent normal segment, 
then that's probably a giant coronary aneurysm. And this is definitely going to be, I don't know what the dimensions were, but you can clearly say this is definitely more than four times greater than the adjacent normal coronary. And so these terms are useful just to be able to, one, study these patients and segment them into different populations, and also to how do we convey information from one to another. So very useful to look at these images. And I think, Ahmed, that's a really good point in terms of having terminology to study these patients, because I'm sure you guys will get into this. We really don't know what to do for these patients. This is a data-free zone and largely driven by registry data and case reports. So it, it is a big decision of what to do next, because we know that aneurysms can present as different symptoms, asymptomatic, acute coronary syndrome, stable angina, unstable angina within the realm of acute coronary syndrome. And you have this patient on the table in front of you, and now you have to make a decision. Do I proceed with an intervention? Do I take the patient off the table? Do I need to investigate more for what this aneurysm may be? And we can maybe talk about that a little bit later, but in terms of thinking of buckets of where this aneurysm be coming from and what the etiology is, it may influence whether you're going to intervene right at this moment or come back for an intervention afterwards because there's different pathology, including vasculitis, coronary disease, connected tissue disease, infection. And so it is a big decision about what to do next. And I'm really glad this patient's in your hands down at the University of Hawaii. So what did they do next? What did you guys do next? I'm, I'm absolutely blown away by these images. I can't stop staring at them. I'm just keeping hitting loop on the play right here because I can't believe this is what the RCA looks like. And I'm just I'm really excited to find out what you guys did next. Yeah, I haven't even been able to touch the shaved ice because I'm just on the edge of my seat or a beach blanket. You brought up such great points and it's such an amazing sort of discussion we just had on the importance of, of naming pathologies correctly. And it changes our differential. It changes our workup. When we have coronary ectasia versus focal aneurysmal disease, that adds or removes a lot of different diagnoses on our list that we should be considering. And I don't want to take the spotlight too much away from uh, Nath and Isaac, who are going to talk about this in a bit. But just to better further characterize our coronary anatomy, our aorta, and of course, the heart, we got a, a CTA coronary study. And it showed a left dominant coronary artery system with extensive calcific atherosclerosis. There was a thrombosed 12 millimeter aneurysm near the proximal LAD right near the first diagonal branch, uh, as well as an occlusion of the large first diagonal branch itself. There was severe stenosis within the mid-LAD. We were thinking maybe it might be secondary to myocardial bridging, which is a whole different topic that's very exciting. And there was a large predominantly thrombosed circumflex aneurysm that measured up to 4.7 centimeters. The RCA turned out to be patent, but with a large mid-RCA aneurysm that was about 4.3 centimeters on coronary CT. So multimodal imaging truly turned out to be helpful to better characterize this gentleman's disease. This is just simply amazing. I, 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 you know, I'm sure you guys have uh, some more learning. I don't want to steal from it. I just want to say I'm having palpitations just like this patient was trying to figure out what to do next here. Someone better get his pads on. <laughs> Love it. Isaac, did you want to summarize the case up until now, just so we have a good framework of uh, what we're dealing with? Sure. So in summary, we have a 60-year-old male presenting with acute decompensated heart failure and newly diagnosed cardiomyopathy. He's got a left heart cath that shows severely ectatic coronary arteries with focal aneurysm disease and a CT coronary that corroborates those same findings. Now, when you're looking at coronary arteries that are ectatic or aneurysmal, do you have a workflow in terms of how you think about these pathologies and what's on your mind as to what's causing them? Thanks, Nishar. That's a great question. So the pathogenesis of the ectatic coronaries is not well understood, and we have very limited data on this. But the first and most common association that we see with this ectatic coronary artery disease is the atherosclerosis. That also guides us in terms of the main management in terms of controlling and risk factors modification in terms of atherosclerotic disease. Coronary artery aneurysm can be related to connective tissue disorders. Coronary artery aneurysms can be related to inflammatory disorders such as Kawasaki disease or other vasculitis as well. Coronary artery disease can be related to infection as well, such as syphilis. 
or it can be directly related to focal artery invasion from bacteria, mycobacteria, or fungal organism as well. With the era of PCI, coronary artery aneurysm can be related to iatrogenic from prior catheter manipulation. And last but not least, we need to also think about um, drug use or substance use. Cocaine can be associated with this coronary artery aneurysm as well. You know, Nath, I think that's a, a wonderful breakdown of potential causes of coronary artery aneurysm. And, you know, what I found helpful for me is when I see something unusual, I always think, what else is going on? And so that doesn't just apply to coronary artery aneurysm, but kind of our zebra diagnosis in general. And to me, coronary artery aneurysm, I say, I see that, but what else? And when I think about what else, I'm thinking about, as Amit has been pointing out, some base rates of disease. And we know atherosclerotic disease is probably the most common culprit of coronary artery aneurysm. But other pathologies, including vasculitides, connective tissue disease, infection, I always go back to the history of the exam, the patient's social history to define that what else. So in terms of a vasculitide, always asking about their childhood history. You know, does this patient had any history of febrile illness or that was that we could maybe elucidate that they had Kawasaki disease? And as we know, Kawasaki disease is a potentially uh, a cause of coronary artery aneurysms. A lot of these aneurysms do regress and they're related to the fact of what the original size of these aneurysms were. And we know that the locations tend to be in the proximal LED and RCA. And then if maybe if this was a young woman of uh, Japanese or Indian descent, not that it's excluded to that area, maybe I'd be thinking about Takayasu. And I would be making sure that I've asked about symptoms of claudication or pulselessness, especially in the upper extremities. And of course, there's other rare things like PAN. Now, lupus can potentially be a contributor, but again, more commonly leads to cardiac disease. We're talking about pericarditis, myocarditis, myocardial dysfunction, or Lemon sacs. And then, of course, the other big bucket, the connective tissue disease. And amongst them, especially now that I've seen several cases of this, Marfans. Now, Marfans, we typically think of involving a, the aortic root and leading to dissection. But the pathology can also involve the coronaries in itself. And we have to be aware that about, I believe, about 20, 25% of patients have no family history and they have de novo mutations. So while we'll take a good, thorough family history, it's also important to know that we look for this. And then what if I open and took inside a look at a patient's mouth and it was a board question and I saw that it was a bifid uvula. Then again, similar to Marfan's, I may be thinking of something like Louis Dietz and of course Ehlers-Danlos, type 4, amongst other ideologies. And as we learned from our UT Southwestern episode, there are infectious causes, including syphilis, that can lead to potentially coronary artery vasculitis and eventually aneurysm amongst the many infectious causes. So again, when I think of aneurysm or something where I say, well, that's the thing I found, but what else is accompanying it? And it helps us narrow in on what the cause may be. And for this patient, it is significant peripheral vascular disease. And so I wholeheartedly agree with your guys' assessment. That's likely the culprit here, but keeping an eye to the other potential causes. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, this is just such a masterful discussion of the etiologies of coronary aneurysms. And it really is like detective work. I think for uh, many of the reasons that Sherlock Holmes appeals to us is that medicine is very much so like detective work. And in this situation, uh, a lot of the causes that you outlined, ASCBD, inflammatory causes, whether it's arteritis, vasculitis, or infectious, and the connective tissue diseases are tend to be systemic diseases. And so they tend to not just be isolated to the coronary beds. And so I would wonder, this patient has a chart diagnosis of peripheral artery disease, but if you could actually, here would be an opportunity to verify what was the morphology of the peripheral artery disease. Was it actually a dissection or an aneurysm or something else that could actually map onto a shared ideology with a giant coronary aneurysm? Uh, because it's not clear to me that it was necessarily atherosclerotic, just from the one-liner alone. And of course, on the other hand would be uh, a direct injury cause of coronary aneurysms, like somebody who had a balloon, a stent, or a brachytherapy, for instance, that would obviously cause localized injury and not be systemic. So thinking about the ideology is very important in thinking about how you're going to approach the management of this patient, but also thinking about how it is that a coronary aneurysm causes disease. Like, do we have the coronary aneurysm? What about it causes symptoms? And defining that also is going to be helpful in identifying the next steps, even though we don't really have a lot of data to guide us. So thinking about the acute pathology linked to coronary aneurysms, we can think either acute thrombosis, thrombosis developing within the coronary aneurysm and then embolizing distally, or coronary aneurysm rupture. 
So the acute ways in which a coronary aneurysm can cause illness is thrombosis, embolism, and rupture. And then there are more chronic syndromes that a coronary aneurysm can cause. One is just luminal stenosis, which can be from worsening of a layering thrombus, progression of uh, associated atheroma, or myofibroblastic proliferation, almost like intimal proliferation, that causes luminal narrowing and stress-induced ischemia and symptoms. Similarly, you can have worsening distal microvascular disease, which is also known to be associated with coronary aneurysms and will cause stress-induced ischemia and symptoms. Or because these aneurysms can become quite gigantic, giant aneurysms, they can also cause compression of local structures. And so you can have compression of one of the chambers, like a right atrium causing issues with diastolic flow and filling. You could have compression of the AV groove causing atrioventricular valve regurgitation and incompetence. Um, And so you could have issues related to the compression itself. And this is where cross-sectional imaging particularly would be helpful. So in this situation, at least from the coronary angiogram, by the way, Nishant, your injection filled up that aneurysm probably better than my injection would have. So awesome job. But it sounded like it was essentially a thrombosed aneurysm without distal flow. And this may persuade us to potentially put this patient on anticoagulation in addition to other structural interventions. So with all this in mind, we've defined the anatomy. We know the clinical syndrome. We've thought about this causes and what specifically led to symptoms here. What was your management approach for this patient? Ultimately, we treated what we had, and that was acute decompensated heart failure. So we diaries him to uvolemia. He improved in his uh, symptomology. We got cardiothoracic surgery on board as well as our other interventionalists for possible PCI. But unfortunately, CT surgery deemed him to be a poor candidate for surgery. Uh, So we managed him medically with anticoagulation, guideline-directed therapy for heart failure. And right now, we're considering him for a possible heart transplant. Wow, Nishant, that is a really surprising turn of events. And I can really see that you guys put a lot of thought into the management plan here, because this is not an easy syndrome to manage. And I think probably out of the scope uh, of this allotted time here for this podcast, but we also just should make a quick mention, as Ahmed was briefly alluding to, that managing this with PCI is not a simple step. You know, there, there are quite a number of different things that we have to consider, whether we're going to be placing a covered stent, whether we're going to be coiling the area of the aneurysm, whether we're going to be able to seal off that aneurysm well, and also whether the actual approach should be resection and cardiac surgery. There are a lot of discussions that need to be taken place. A multidisciplinary team is necessary, and it seems like you guys involved all the appropriate parties and really appreciate that his patient's within your care and wish him all the best. Thanks for that, Karen. Uh, we're really lucky here at uh, University of Hawaii that our cardiothoracic surgeons, our interventionalists, our general cardiologists, our cardiac imagers, it's a very tight collegial group. And so we discuss and share patient workup and management options with them on a daily basis. And they're so helpful. At the end of the day, we just want to do right by our patient and take great care of them. And I really think here, I'm very happy and I'm I hope I can speak for Isaac and Nath as well. We really feel that we're giving our patients the best possible options and care possible. So really appreciate uh, this talk through of, of this patient. And we're also hoping for the best for him. Yeah, thanks, guys. I mean, this is uh, just such an example of, I think cardiology probably has the, the most clinical data uh, published and available of many of the disciplines within medicine, but there's still so much art and so much unknown, which uh, simultaneously is why cardiology is so exciting because we're learning so much, but also why it can be challenging. And on that vein, so important to really function as a team and make the best decisions we can. Because uh, here's a situation where we're engaging with vascular medicine, interventional cardiology, imaging experts, cardiothoracic surgery, advanced heart failure for possible transplantation. There is so much going on here, and we just made the best decision we can for this patient at the center. And on that note, I'd love to hear from you guys why you all love cardiology, why did you decide to become cardiologists, and what makes your hearts flutter about training at the University of Hawaii, besides the Hawaii? That's a great question. I could probably do an hour podcast on all the things I love about cardiology and why I went into it. But I love the fact that for an organ, you know, generally, the size of our fist, 
such incredible implications for a patient in terms of its pathology, its physiology. I don't want to say it's the most important organ, even though I want to, uh, but there, there is something in cardiology for everybody, whether you like uh, electrophysiology and the science behind how electricity is conducted through the heart, whether you like the mechanics and physiology that heart failure folks deal with, the pharmacology incredible. We have so many tools in our belt uh, to make patients better from a pharmacological standpoint. And for those of us who love procedures, there is no shortage. We are working very hard, I think, to revascularize people, ablate people, fix their valves, all from percutaneous access. And I think that is just phenomenal, both for patients and for our own intellectual curiosity. So if anybody out there is considering a subspecialty, I hope they give some time to think about cardiology. Yeah, I I also, I just want to thank everyone at CardioNerds for hosting us today. And I'm so grateful for Isaac and Nath and Sean for putting together a great case for us today. And I'm so glad we're able to share it with you all. This is part of what I love about cardiology is just the variety of really interesting pathology that crosses disciplines. And it does involve a collaborative approach from like you mentioned, the other specialties from the cardiothoracic surgeons to the interventional docs to to the imaging docs and throughout all the, the different disciplines coming together to coordinate the care of a single patient. And like Nishan said, that collaboration is something that we really do value over at the University of Hawaii and something that really adds to our education and training here. All the different attendings from those different specialties are so invested in our education and it really adds to our experiences. I am particularly, you know, as someone going into EP, very drawn to the intricacies of the conduction system, the heart and the variety of pathology and just the electrical system itself. And that's just one small part of everything that we explore during our fellowship. So I've had such a great experience working with these guys and just talking about it all with you guys today. So for me, I always get super excited at how cardiology seems to be pushing the envelope in terms of frontiers of medicine. In every subspecialty, we seem to really advance to another level every five years. And uh, seeing that progress within a field in less than a generation is uh, super exciting and what really drew me into the field. I enjoy the variety of practices in cardiology. You can do multiple things in the cardiology field. You can see your patient in clinic, or if you like fast-paced patient, you can see a lot of patients in the emergency department or in the inpatient wards. Also, you can practice in the setting that you read imaging, whether it's going to be echocardiogram or CT or cardiac MRI. So I, I like being able to practice in a variety, it keep me busy, it keep me invested in my education and try to learn more about cardiology. Being here in Hawaii, in the University of Hawaii Cardiology Fellowship Program here, I feel like I am in an extended family here because everyone, including faculties, are approachable. I love to spend time with my co-fellows, both in the hospital and also outside the hospital as well. I like to um, go out with my co-fellow to the beach, go to a good restaurant here, and also enjoy having outdoor activities with my co-fellows. Also, I can always find supports when I need it, and I don't feel like I'm alone here in Hawaii. Yeah, I, I would just have to, again, second what Nath was talking about. What we have at the University of Hawaii, I think, is very special in our training in that we truly are, we'll, you will hear that word a lot if you um, will start talking about the University of Hawaii, but we truly are an ohana. Ohana is the Hawaiian word for family. And that's something that's really, that's really strengthened where we are. It's, it's great to be at a place where we truly enjoy all the people that we're working with um, and have that support among our co-fellows and also between the fellows and the faculty. It does also help to add to our training being the main referral center in the Pacific Basin so that we have all the specialized cardiac care from uh, interventional to electrophysiology to structural and advanced imaging and to manage the patients that are flown over to us from all over, from all the outer islands throughout Micronesia and Polynesia. So it's really a special place to be training. 
well, Nishant, Shana, Isaac, Nath, we just want to thank you for welcoming us to your University of Hawaii Ohana. And we are welcoming you back to the Cardio Nerds Ohana. You are part of it now. We This was such a wonderful episode. And me personally, thank you for bringing my wife to Hawaii. Now that I can, I've said I brought her there. So I really appreciate you taking us on this journey to your wonderful state. And I want to say again from the bottom of my heart, we really, really do appreciate you guys spending the time with us this afternoon. It was totally our pleasure. This was such a wonderful experience and we hope to be back soon. Thank you so much for having us. We had a great time. You guys, I just have to say mahalo. We are so thankful for this discussion. We learned so much. It was just an absolute joy. And Karen, uh, I don't think this makes up for it. I think you still like physically have to go to Hawaii. But on that note, now that the shaved ice and the pina coladas are done, how about we make like a atrial mixoma and plop into that water? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Come over anytime. Whenever you're free. I, I thought about that about 40 minutes in. I've just been waiting to say that. You know, Amit thought about that the moment the Cardio Nerd series came out and the University of Hawaii signed up. That is a perfect way to end. And now for the ECPR and message to applicants by our program director, Dr. Dipenjan Banerjee, who is a specialist in advanced heart failure, also an educator and mentor to all of us at the University of Hawaii Cardiology Fellowship Program. Hello, my name is Deep Banerjee. I'm the Advanced Heart Failure Director at the Queens Medical Center in Honolulu, Hawaii. But more importantly, I'm the Cardiology Fellowship Program Director at the University of Hawaii. I appreciate the opportunity to participate in this Cardio Nerds podcast and the invitation from the Cardio Nerds team, including Karan and Amit. It's exciting for me to piggyback on a case presented by our excellent fellows, Shauna Nishant, Isaac, and Nath and provide the ECPR discussion, but also tell you a little bit about why I think the University of Hawaii program is a compelling place to train for any cardiology fellow. The two most important aspects of the case to me are the pathology of the case itself, coronary artery aneurysms, and also the approach to complicated cases that we have in this era of multimodality imaging, but also multidisciplinary teams. Starting with the approach to difficult cases, I think we have to keep in mind that we have a patient in front of us and prioritize our approach based on the manifestation of that patient's presentation. In particular, in this case, there were were myriad symptoms and signs that were abnormal. The patient presented with fatigue, dyspnea, and palpitations, but also ended up having an abnormal chest x-ray, an abnormal echocardiogram, an abnormal coronary angiogram, and an abnormal CT angiogram with some ventricular tachycardia thrown into the middle of it all. I try to approach a complicated case like this the same way I would approach a code, except in a code situation, you don't have quite as much time to generate a differential diagnosis and make decisions. In this case, the signs and symptoms were those of heart failure. And though the abnormality on imaging was glaring and crying out for attention, it was not the most proximate concern. Rather than think of this as a coronary artery aneurysm case with incidental heart failure, I would rather think of this as a case of acute decompensated heart failure complicated by coronary artery aneurysms. It's a subtle change in approach, but I think one that leads to a more comprehensive approach that's better for patient care. If one shifts the approach to thinking of heart failure as the root problem to explore, the differential becomes broader rather than thinking of just the differential for coronary artery aneurysms. Remember also that a differential can change or be refined as you get more information. It's completely fine to go back to a patient and ask for more information, delve further into the patient's history or their family history, and perform more of a physical examination. I think in this case, going back to the patient to look for other potential causes of coronary artery aneurysms, such as inflammatory disorders, might be helpful. And further genetic testing might be helpful, for example, to elucidate a potential underlying connective tissue disorder, such as Morphan's or Lois Dietz, as was discussed by the fellows. 
it almost goes without saying that that extra information gathering includes further diagnostic imaging. In this case, the CT coronary angiography was instrumental in determining whether the extent of the coronary artery aneurysms. But one might hypothesize that we should look even further afield to other vascular beds, for example, and perform even more investigation of the aneurysm themselves. Uh, there have certainly been reports of intravascular ultrasound to assess the neural part of the aneurysms and whether there might be invested thrombus, which are more precise and sensitive than coronary angiography alone. Regarding the pathophysiology of coronary artery aneurysms itself, I would echo the previous discussion and reinforce what was stated before that this disease state to a large extent is a black box. There isn't much information, and I see it similar to coronary artery dissections, spontaneous coronary artery dissections, a field which there is now much more interest in as we gather more data. The hope is that as more data accrues with coronary artery aneurysms, we'll have a better idea of how to manage and treat them. It's not a very common phenomenon and can be an incidental finding found on about 5% of coronary angiograms. Although, as mentioned before, we try to be precise in the definition of coronary artery aneurysms versus coronary ectasia. To date, it's not clear that those definitions matter in terms of making a difference in patient outcomes or how we manage patients. The differential for the etiologies that might cause coronary artery aneurysms is fairly broad and, as mentioned before, include an underlying genetic susceptibility, coronary artery disease, connective tissue disorders, local trauma, and post-infectious etiology. In our case, given the patient's known peripheral vascular disease, the most likely etiology was the same risk factors that caused that peripheral vascular disease and led to the patient's coronary disease. And I think it cannot be emphasized enough that to modify the progression of these coronary artery aneurysms, the most important thing to do is to treat the underlying causes and risk factors such as hypertension and dyslipidemia. Regarding the characterization of these lesions, I would emphasize once more that a multimodality imaging approach should be taken. You can't rest just on coronary angiography, which has its limitations, and the extent of the lesions can best be defined by coronary CT angiography. I think that intravascular ultrasound, as I mentioned before, is a very promising modality to define these lesions and potentially direct us toward the best intervention for those lesions if needed. The treatment of these lesions is not based on randomized clinical trials, but rather consensus and common sense. I think everyone could agree that risk factor modification is important. If there is an obvious thrombus seen in the aneurysm, then most people would anticoagulate with oral anticoagulation. Prophylactic anticoagulation with dual antiplatelet therapy is more controversial, as there's no established evidence for the same. I think it's begging for a clinical trial or an enterprising fellow to look over a database and determine whether that approach might be beneficial. Percutaneous intervention has really been examined only in case reports, and I think, again, it's obvious that in an acute myocardial infarction, we would use that intervention to prevent a poor outcome. But as with any intervention on the coronary arteries, sometimes you can do more harm than good, particularly with these complicated lesions. Coronary artery bypass grafting, as we talked about, can be an option and can directly excise the aneurysms and bypass them. But this is a diffuse process, typically, rather than a focal process. And in this case, the process was diffuse enough that that was not an option. And sometimes you do have to think farther afield. I'm a heart failure specialist, so I always think, you know, is this process so severe and so inexorable that we have to think of cardiac transplantation, replacing the whole heart, rather than continuing to manage this chronic condition without a good treatment option? I'll switch gears now and talk about the University of Hawaii Cardiology Fellowship Program. I think it's a great place to train, and I'm very excited about taking this program to the next level with our fellows. I think there's one thing I could say about our program that differentiates it from other programs in the country. It's that we have a balance, I would say, of 
emphasizing fellow development and clinical proficiency with fellow wellness. I think we're a program that really values our fellows and not just as trainees, but also as future faculty. I tell all of our fellows that pretty soon they're going to be practicing alongside us. So it doesn't make sense to treat them any differently than we would treat a fellow faculty member. There are very few programs in the country where fellows get weekly meetings with the program director, but that happens in our program. This forum and our faculty's accessibility allow fellows direct input on any aspect of the fellowship, including the didactic curriculum and clinical rotations. Regarding our didactic curriculum and clinical rotations, we feel that based on those, our fellows are very well prepared for any career after they graduate from our fellowship. That's evidenced by our 100% board pass rate and the positions they attain after they graduate, including general cardiology positions, as well as any subspecialty fellowship. We've had fellows go on to advanced heart failure fellowships at UCLA and Cedars, electrophysiology fellowships at Harbor UCLA and Stanford, adult congenital heart disease fellowships at UCLA, interventional fellowships at places like Mount Sinai, and advanced imaging fellowship at Columbia University. Of equal importance to the fact that our fellows go on to do great things is the fact that they come back. Of our fellows who have graduated since the program's inception, more than half have come back to Hawaii, and the majority of those have come back to practice at Queens. I see that as a testament to the incredible environment that we've created here that I would say is collaborative and welcoming, and also to the fact that the training here is great, and we want trainees to stay on here after they've completed it. I'll close by saying that the philosophy of a cardiology fellowship and cardiology division is pretty important. And our philosophy is one of service. You can make a big difference here in Hawaii, and we certainly aim to do so. We have a indigent clinic that we staff, the Queen Emma Clinic. The whole hospital, Queen's Hospital, was founded by Hawaiian royalty to treat the native Hawaiians and the people of Hawaii when there was no other hospital for them. And we take that very seriously. And so I would hope that any applicant here would take that philosophy of service seriously too, because that's what makes this place special to me and I think to everyone in our cardiology fellowship. Thanks again to the Cardio Nerds team, to our fellows for an excellent case presentation and discussion. And please reach out at any time if you want more information about the University of Hawaii Cardiology Fellowship Program. Mahalo. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the CardioNerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karin Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, read and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S do and split. So it was either, I, I was going back and forth, maybe we can take a poll later. It was either make like an atrial myxoma and plop into the water or make like an S3 and gallop into the water. But I, I think the atrial myxoma says it really well. Either one, I'm proud to still be associated with you, Amit, and definitely the <laughs> University of Hawaii. <laughs> All right.